I'd invite you to turn with me again this morning to Luke chapter 15. We've been in Luke 15 for the last couple of weeks, and we're going to continue on one more time next week as well, as we're looking at what I believe are the key uh, parables, the key stories, and particularly the one we're looking at this morning, the key story of Jesus' ministry. We talked a little bit about this over the last couple of weeks, but way back in the Old Testament, back in Ezekiel 34, God had condemned the shepherds, the leaders of Israel, for their failure, and He said, I'm going to send a new shepherd, a new David, who everyone knew was the coming Messiah, and he is is going to take care of the sheep in a way that, that you folks haven't, he says. In fact, he has two parts to his job description. His job description was to come to seek and to save the lost sheep of Israel, and then to shepherd them with justice and righteousness. And of course, then Jesus comes on the scene and he takes that on as his job description. He says uh, at one point we see him uh, looking at the, the folks and saying, um, or looking at them and having compassion for them because, as he thought, they were, sh- they were sheep without a shepherd. They just were shepherdless. So that ties us in with that Old Testament prophecy of what Messiah was going to do. And then later when he comes and, and sees Zacchaeus and invites himself to Zacchaeus' house and some of the, the leaders complain uh, that he was going to go to a house of a tax collector, then Jesus says, um, basically gives his job description again. He said, I have come to seek and to save that which is lost. That job description then is put out in parable form, in story form, in Luke chapter 15. Three stories, all of lostness, a lost sheep, which again ties in with that Exodus 34 passage, one of 100, a lost coin, one of 10, increasing value, and then a lost son, one of two, even more increasing value. Jesus is saying there's value in those who are lost. So we're looking at the third of those parables. We know it as the parable of the prodigal son, and indeed last week we looked at it from the perspective of the prodigal son or from the perspective of us, because we are the prodigals. That we are called to identify in the parable with the prodigal son. But now we're going to look at it from another character in the parable, and that is the loving father. So let's look at that parable <clears throat> once again, Luke 15, verses 11 through 32. Jesus continued, of course, he's told the other two parables, ties these directly in. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his field to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? Here I am starving to death. I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy 
to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went out to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard the music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you're always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Next week we'll look at the other son, but we'd focus our attention this morning on our loving Father. Would you join me in prayer? Father God, we thank you for the pictures that you give us in your word of who you are and of what you've done for us. Help us to understand and to accept what you have done for us as Jesus lays it out in this parable, as he laid it out in his own life so that we might respond with gratitude and joy and service and living for you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. It's not what I expected. Have you ever said that? Sometimes we say that with disappointment. Oh, it wasn't what I expected. Sometimes with delight. Wow, that wasn't what I expected. I've noticed that I've often said that when I've attended conferences with people whose books I've read and and maybe talks I have listened to. One that comes to mind was R.C. Sproul. From his videotapes, yes, I said videotapes because back when I used R.C. Sproul in teaching, that's what we used. From his videotapes and his books, I kind of expected him to be an aloof, scholarly professor type. However, when I went to one of his conferences in person, I found he's a, he's a down-to-earth, excitable, fun-loving big kid. He's actually much smaller than I would have anticipated. On the contrast, James Dobson is actually much bigger. He's like 6'5". I was amazed when I walked by him. That sometimes happens with cameras, right? You see people on the cameras and they look bigger than life. One, one example outside of the Christian world is Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan, we always have in mind this big cowboy, right? 
big strapping cowboy, and sometimes we'd see him on a horse on his ranch and the like. But when I actually got to meet him and shake hands with him, I was surprised how short he was and how small of stature. So we have expectations for people based on not all of the same, all of the, the uh, facts. And I wonder, do we ever do that with God? J.B. Phillips, in a book he wrote many years ago, Your God is Too Small, writes about that. He talks about a number of different images that people have for God. A policeman, always ready to catch you in the act. A judge, ready to throw the book at you. Or on the flip side, some people see God as kind of a grand old man, like a, like a grandfather figure or maybe Santa Claus who just loves to dote on his children and, and give them everything they want. Still others see God as kind of the managing director of the universe. He creates the world and then he sets it in motion and then he just sort of sets back and, and, and lets it run uh, he's kind of aloof. He's up in the corner office and nobody ever sees him. Sigmund Freud said God is our projected image of our ideal father. Closer to Jesus' day, people saw him like the Greek and Roman deities. Powerful, uncaring, loved to toy with those little people they created. What is God to you? Who is God to you? Well, this story shows us a God we don't expect. In a parable that we might better call the loving father because he's really the main character. Now, last week we talked about the younger son. And his request, give me my share of the inheritance. Let me liquidate part of the family farm. And we noted that in that culture, it was as if you were saying, he were saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. Now, if you don't catch that, if you haven't, weren't here last week, you might want to go back and, and list, take a listen on our website to that message or to look at it on Facebook um, to just kind of get some of that background material we can't cover again today. The prodigal's words we saw and actions were totally inappropriate, especially in that culture. They were insulting. They were a death wish. And a good Jewish father, a good Middle Eastern father, would reject that request immediately and discipline the son, maybe even beat some sense into him. Now, as with most of Jesus' parables, however, this one takes an unexpected turn. Actually, several times in the parable, it takes an unexpected turn. But one is right at the outset. Because unexpectedly, the father shows this younger son a risky love, a risky love. He acknowledges his son's desire for independence rather than shutting him out completely. And though it broke his heart, he gave him permission to take his share, even sell part of the family farm, which, of course, 
meant that the father was giving up some of his livelihood, some of his rightful pension, the, the fruit, the crops of the farm. And so it was not only a risky love, it was also a selfless love, a selfless love. The father was saying, in a sense, that the younger son's life was more important than his own. And, of course, it was also a broken-hearted love, a broken-hearted love. In essence, he was saying, I love you enough to let you go. I think as parents, we have a feel for this. I remember when our girls were growing up, especially when they were really little and just starting to walk, I was always kind of walking behind them, trying to catch them in case they fell. And you know, that really didn't stop as they grew up. Not the walking part, but just always trying to catch them when they fell, keep them insulated from, from any hurts in life. But at a certain point, I, we all, had to let them go on their own, especially when they went off to college, when they got married. And it still hurt when they fell. It still hurt when they blew it, especially when they got older and should have known better. But how many of us would go as far as this father in the parable? Well, in this father, we meet God the Father. He loves his sons and daughters, who he created in his own image, with a selfless love. In the Garden of Eden, when he could have kind of made us into robots that followed his every command and never sinned against him, instead he risked everything and showed his love by giving freedom to choose good or evil. Of course, we abuse that freedom and broke his heart, but he loved us enough, in a sense, to let us go. Is that the selfless love of the Father that you worship today? Well, the Father let him go, and the Son went, but the Father knew he'd come home. In fact, many rabbis told very similar parables to Jesus before and during Jesus' time about sons returning to their fathers. One example from Deuteronomy Rabbah, a commentary in Deuteronomy. One, uh, one rabbi writes, To what can repentance be compared? It can be compared to the son of a king who went out to evil ways. The king sent a pedagogue after him. Now, a pedagogue was a, a slave that actually was responsible for tutoring and taking care of that child. The king set a pedagogue after him who said to him, Return, my son. And it happened that the son sent the slave back to his father to say, How could I be so brazen-faced to return? I'm ashamed to appear before you. And it happened that his father sent back to him saying, My son, is a son ever ashamed to return to his father? And is it not your father to whom you will be returning? And so there's this sense already among the rabbis of the, the fatherly love of God. Now, in this parable, there were some expectations. When the son returned, it would soon be evidence that he had lost the family property, which had been in the family for generations, to the Gentiles. After all, he went to a far country. That was a key word for the Jews, for Gentile territory. He 
uh, ended up in a pig pen, which of course you wouldn't find in Israel. And this would have been a good enough reason to have a kazaza ceremony. A kizaza ceremony was a ceremony in which someone would be cut off from the community, never to return. He'd be cut off from the family, he'd be cut off from the community, and that would be it. Never again could he come back to that village or that family. Now the father had a role in that. This father, who apparently is well off because he has an estate, and not everyone did in those days, the father then would have been a man of honor and nobility. Now understand that a man of nobility in first century Middle East, a man of nobility never ran. Never ran. He walked. He carried himself with dignity. Wearing long flowing robes, he would never lift them up to run, bearing his legs in public. He would follow community standards. And another community standard was that he would be expected to actually initiate or at least allow the cutting off ceremony. That he would at one point in that ceremony say, my son is dead. My son is dead to me. That was the expectation. But again, Jesus throws us a a little bit of a curve in this parable. This father knew that a crowd would gather, beginning to abuse his son verbally and physically. He imagined his son coming down the, running the gauntlet on, on Main Street, being pushed and shoved, and he imagined that the community would, would immediately start to uh, form to have this cutting off ceremony. So one day he sees his son in the distance. He's probably been watching day after day. He sees his son in the distance, but he knows the villagers have as well. And he knows that there's only one thing he could do to save his son, to protect him and restore him to the family and community. And so he breaks all the rules to do it. He takes his son's place in public humiliation, running with robes lifted down the business district on Main Street to the faces of the gathering lynch mob. People snicker. They shake their heads. Look at that old fool, they say. He reaches his son at the outskirts of the village, and before his son can beg forgiveness or or launch into his rehearsed speech, the father hugs him and kisses him, a sign of forgiveness and reconciliation. Now understand the community is not saying, oh, isn't that loving? Isn't that touching? Isn't that honorable? No, they had lost a lot of respect for the man that day because these were acts of of total humiliation. They probably thought him a fool from that day on. And yet he had achieved his purpose. For once the father forgave the son, The community could no longer cut him off. So in this parable, we meet not only God the Father, but we meet Jesus our Savior. Because that, the Father's actions, is a picture of the incarnation and cross of Jesus. We had turned our backs on God, sold our souls to the world, and lost them in the process. 
But God doesn't punish us, cut us off. Instead, Jesus takes the punishment that we deserve but cannot handle. Paul talks about Jesus' humiliation, running the gauntlet. He became a man. He humbled himself, became a man, gave up some of his godness, became a man, and then he became a servant, a lower form of of a human being, and then he became a criminal, even to death on the cross. Through Jesus' death on the cross, he became a criminal in the eyes of society, but he was also cursed and forsaken by God because of our sin. He was humiliated. He was cut off in our place. But it was the only way we could be forgiven and reconciled. Is that the self-sacrificial God you know and love today? Now that's more than enough love shown, but the love keeps giving. Because even now, some of the Pharisees listening to that parable would have expected that the son would earn his way back into the family, come back as a beggar, do works of repentance before being fully accepted. Because it's one thing for a father to forgive and love his son, but it's another to let him off scot-free. And yet, that's exactly what happens. The father continues to pay the price. With the giving of the signet ring, which was basically a sign of authority over the estate, the son is fully accepted back without earning trust onto the family farm. With the giving of the best robe, which would have been the father's robe, the son was not only accepted back into the family, but into the community, into the village. They would have to accept him based on his father's reputation. And more than that, not only is there not a kizaza ceremony, but a banquet is thrown in his honor to celebrate the return, not of a slave, not of a servant, but of a son. And so here we meet more than a God of love, we meet a God of self-giving grace. Self-giving grace. Warren Wiersbe writes, we're not saved by God's love. God loves the whole world, and the whole world is not saved. We are saved by grace, and grace is love that pays a price. God already paid that price, our admission fee into his kingdom. But he goes beyond that and and gives us full rights as sons and daughters. He robes us with the robe of Christ's righteousness, and he has a banquet planned in our honor. Is that the self-giving God of grace that you worship today? You see, the story invites us not to expect, but to accept the unexpected. A God, a Father who loves us selflessly and unexpectedly. How do we react? Our only action is repentance. Another rabbinic parable says, Repentance may be compared to the son of a king who is far away from his father. A hundred days' journey. His friend said to him, return to your father. He replied, I'm not able. His father sent him a message, come as far as you are able according to your own strength, and I will come the rest of the way. Thus the Holy One, blessed be he, said in Malachi 3.7, return to me and I will return to you. Of course, Jesus came all the way, all the way 
to be incarnated so that all we have to do is accept being accepted. We talked about that. That's repentance. To accept being accepted. So are we prodigals willing to accept the unexpected love of the Father through the unexpected sacrifice of the Son? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your amazing love. Jesus, we thank you for being willing to take upon yourself our humiliation, our punishment for our sin, so that we might be in a restored relationship with the Father. Help us to accept that grace in our lives. And then to help others to understand it and accept it as well. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's respond by singing together, How Great is the Love of the Father. How Great is the Love of the Father. We'll stand and sing three verses.